Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics, seven days a week with me, Dr. Kasia Tomasiewicz. Every decade has its cliché tropes, and the 1980s, with its shoulder pads, permed hair and leg warmers, is no different. But beyond this caricature, what role did culture play in the 1980s, and how was it an agent of change? Should we take it more seriously? Joining me to answer this is Lucy Robinson, Professor of Collaborative History at the University of Sussex. Lucy used to teach me, and she completely changed how I see the world. Her new book, Now That's What I Call A History of the 1980s, might just do the same for you. Although, as she warns readers at the beginning, this is my version of Britain in the 1980s. It might not be yours. It might stop and focus on things that you would skip over. It might only nod to things that mean a lot to you. You might feel like you've heard some of it before, but that's okay. It is, after all, what I call the history of the 1980s. Hi, Lucy. Oh, thanks for such a lovely introduction, Cash. It's great to see you. <laughs> I'm really, really, really excited for this. So, Lucy, as a fellow contemporary historian, I love that you caveat this as your history of the 1980s. Why did you feel like it was so important to do that? I think there's a number of reasons. If I'm really honest, some of it was defensive. So it was, I am expecting someone to get back to me and say, but where is the chapter on darts? Or (laughs) how come you haven't talked enough about space travel? And it's true, I haven't, because there are some things that I don't feel qualified to talk about, really. So part of it was the defensive, like, before you even get on me, I can see the reviewers that are going to be saying, oh, but she completely missed out, you know, X, Y, or Z. So some of it was a bit defensive. But it was also about recognising that, History isn't really a thing. Like, it's not an actually (laughs) solid thing. It's a conversation. And it's a conversation that I'm leaning on the conversations that other people have had at the time or have had since or are having now. So I don't want to claim ownership of the 1980s or this is everything you could possibly know about the 1980s. And I want it to be really upfront that this is about me exploring the way that I could think about the past. And I kind of hoped that it might be a bit of an invitation for someone else to think, oh, well, actually, this would be my version of the 1980s. So I've chosen 10 moments, objects or themes that I think matter. And I'd love to have a a back page of the book that basically said, fill in your (laughs) one to 10 of things that you think I should have written about. But it's an invitation for other people to think about, all right, what if I pick an object and see how far forwards, backwards, sideways I could go with it. And what would that lead me to? And what an invitation your book is, Lucy. (laughs) It really, really is. And you use the concept of the Now compilation album to frame the 1980s. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Why you chose the Now compilation album? Yeah, there's a number of reasons. Partly, a lot of my work recently has been on subcultures, activism, the kind of sexy, authentic end of pop and politics. Mm. And I've relatively recently really moved away from that and been thinking a lot more about 
the more mainstream, the more commercial, they're in more people's bedrooms or CD players or Walkmans, the better. Let's think about what matters in there. So now, because it's such a clever commercial move to basically take ownership of the idea of compilation records and sort of stitch it up between a, between a few record labels. So partly I thought this is a really, this is a big Thatcherite move, but it's because it's such a big Thatcherite move to make so much money with quite cheap products and reuse other people's labour for your own profit. It's also <laughs> in loads of people's houses. Yeah. And it's something that lo- introduced lots of people to music. So I think there were those two things. And then if my starting point is, I demand the right to take, and now that's what I call music compilation, as seriously as I take Hansard or a parliamentary debate, right? I demand that right. More than that, I want to think about what happens if I do history as a now compilation. So not just kind of take it seriously, but learn from it and think about what happens if we put things next to each other that probably shouldn't be with each other. And some of them are probably pretty good. Some of them are probably more novelties. Some of them are things that I'd never listen to and I would constantly skip over. So rather than just taking popular culture seriously, I wanted to learn from it. I absolutely love that. You give such a vast array of examples, objects, ideas. So along with the now compilation albums that you look at, you also look at things like Glastonbury Festival, reggae singer Smiley Culture, pictures of Princess Diana's legs in the Sun newspaper and the TV icon, Roland Rat. How does looking at these different things shape how we see that decade? I think each of them was worth thinking about what I call a perforation, but you might think about as being a link or a relationship between different themes and events. And so some of them just jumped out at me, like Lady Diana's legs. It's a really intrusive moment when the Sun newspaper take a photo of a young woman at work in a childcare setting and take photos of her backlit with the sun so we can see through her skirt. Right? I, that really struck me in the wake of kind of Me Too and feminist debates about female representation, the representation of the body as a really intrusive act of violence, actually. And that led me to think about, well, what is the relationship between page three debates, the way that green and women are getting slagged off for not being feminine enough, the marketability of bits of Diana's body in newspapers? That is telling me something about the relationship between royalty, gender, the press, the government and the public. So it's kind of Diana's legs for me kind of perforate or set up a covenant between the monarchy, the paparazzi, the tabloid press wars and the nation and what the nation thinks of itself and of womanhood. It's fascinating because these things are connected to each other, but they're also through your book connected to kind of the broader themes that you address, for example, around questions around race, questions around the BBC. There are so many different aspects of this decade. I just found it really, really compelling. And it reminded me of Ben Highmore's work on the constellation of things. So the idea that when you're looking at a decade, how do you know that you're in that decade? What's the tensions between the old and the new world? So this idea of a constellation of things, you know, you can't just look at Diana's legs in the Sun newspaper because that has t- there's too much cultural weight for those legs to bear. So you have to look at it in combination with her legs, smiley culture, Roland Rat, all of these other things to get an evocative picture of the decade and all of you know you're listening to the sounds of the street to the sounds of ordinary life as a way to understand it right 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I completely adore everything Ben Highmore writes, and his new <laughs> book is amazing, and it's also beautiful. I think that idea of a constellation, or I'm calling it a perforation, but there's lots of other ways of thinking about it. It's a way of of saying there is a material reality, like stuff does actually happen, but doesn't necessarily all happen in the same way at the same time for everyone. So lots of the histories about the 1980s are understandably caught up in trying to have the ultimate argument about what went wrong or what went right or what Thatcher was good at or what she shouldn't have done or whether minors should have won. And all of those things are important conversations, but they're kind of caught up with proving a point. And I wanted to see, well, maybe Scargill and Thatcher, rather than only being at loggerheads, are also both responses to the same shared context. Like they're both ways of making like their ideology, their press representation, their words are both responding to the same moment. So rather than it being a kind of he says, she says, I like this one, this one's got wears nice handbags, this one's got a bad comb over, rather than that sort of personality of the eight is politics, I wanted to think about what's that constellation? What else is going on around them? I really love that as well, because when I was working in the Imperial War Museum for a little while, I was really struck talking to the curators there about how many historians look back on the past, but they don't actually engage with the material of the time. So, you know, you read things, you go to archives, which, of course, is important historical work. But there isn't this kind of sense that, like, you really understand what a soldier went through, for example, if you know how heavy his kit bag is or her kit bag is. So, you know, this kind of material aspect is often overlooked because it's not, quote unquote, serious enough. You're so spot on, though, to think about this coming from the Imperial War Museum. So there's a chapter that I write about Adamant, thinking about the different ways that stories of war or soldier stories are told and shared in the 80s with that growth of new sorts of media. So new magazines, new sorts of cheap printing, Walkman's comics, fancy dress costumes, makeup, new sorts of TV, cartoons, all of that stuff. In the Imperial War Museum, you'll see the anonymity of the SAS in their uniform and the way it's displayed on the mannequins. And then comparing that to the way that Adamant's Prince Charming and Highwayman outfits are displayed in the V&A, right? That there's a similarity between the way that these sort of headless mannequins Mm. are being used to represent storytelling and the past and, and stories of war that maybe is a different way of thinking about war than getting inside a combatant's head or asking them to tell us what happened in the field of battle. It's getting them to think about themselves in in a conversation with each other, maybe. Because I love this. Obviously, you know, like I'm a war historian as well. And I am I was absolutely obsessed with how you put stories of Adamant next to stories of the SAS in the 1980s. Now, this is going to blow a lot of our listeners' minds. Could you kind of map out that relationship a little bit more? And also, I guess one of the things I wanted to follow on ask is, are these things actually, did they just happen in the same time, but they're actually quite disparate things? I think a lot of people will listen and go, okay, so Adamant existed in the 1980s. Okay, the SAS had quite a media moment, I guess, in the 1980s. Sure. But are they actually connected? And I think that's kind of the cultural historian's biggest problem, isn't it? By kind of going, (laughs) these things are connected. But that's when I play my get out of jail free card, which is that, but this is just my version of the 1980s. (laughs) So I'm not saying that the SAS modelled themselves on Adamant, nor am I saying that Adamant was in the SAS. Right. But what I'm saying is there are certain conversations around masculinity and the media and heroism that are percolating around. And one of the reasons, in my mind, it makes complete sense to move from Adamant to H. Jones or Simon Weston and the SAS is because of the ways that individual heroes and unknown collective 
heroes were deployed during the Falklands War during Northern Ireland. And there's a sort of, so there's a bit of military historian in there, which I've done a lot of work on Falklands memoirs and Falklands veterans. I know a lot about the ways in which those narratives are woven together. But I wanted to see, well, what's the bigger picture? What is going on here when suddenly heroism is not necessarily about looking back to your parents or your grandparents' generation, First World War and Second World War. It's borrowing things from Indigenous Americans. It's borrowing a bit of pirate stuff. It's borrowing stuff from highwaymen. These are all stories about the kind of dangerous dynamic masculine heroism and really what taught me to think about that was the historians growing out of that were in the 1980s responding to their world in the 1980s mm-hmm. which is historians like Graham Dawson like Lucy Noakes who were really early in their career who were saying I go we sort of thought we knew what the end of jingoism looked like we sort of thought that was over and done with and here's the Falklands War and here's Northern Ireland with completely different public moralization public responses to combatants being sent off to this odd sort of war and historians in the 1980s start thinking well hang on what is the role of how we talk about war in perpetuating these kind of ideas around masculinity so one of the things that I do throughout the book but probably only someone who's had the particular bookshelves that I've got would realise is I'm taking ideas that historians or cultural theorists came up with in the 1980s and seeing what happens if I reapply them back to the context in which they were developed. So I guess one of the conversations that kind of hangs over any any discussion about the 1980s is the role of new media. And I have to ask you about Neil Kinnock on the telly, because, because in our, you know, politicised media landscape that we currently live in, politicians are always on the TV. So we forget that that wasn't always so. So how did politicians on TV shape the decade? Yeah, I mean, I think because we read this so often through New Labour and the rebranding of Labour, which Kinnock oversees in terms of introducing the rose and getting rid of the commitment to nationalisation and redistribution of wealth and all that, we sort of imagine it's a Labour thing, but it wasn't. I mean, the Conservative Party were actually much more early adaptive to the new sorts of media landscape. I'm not saying politicians weren't on telly. There were general election campaigns. Mm. There were addresses to the nation. There were interviews on political programming. What I'm talking about is the movement of politicians into the sort of TV studios that we associate with TV chefs, pop stars, Mm -hmm. soap stars. They start getting on the sofa. And Thatcher goes on to Swap Shop, Saturday morning BBC children's show, and she starts reviewing pop singles. But somehow we attach it to Kinnock. And that's partly because Kinnock has been kind of set up as a bit of a media joke or a faux pas. Like his career has been explained as though it all hinges on a couple of media moments rather than on shifting ideas around voting or what the Labour Party was doing, that it comes down to two, two or three moments in Kinnock's career somehow explain Labour losing elections, which we don't, you know, it's a lazy argument, really. Um, but also I think because, because of Blair, we associate new Labour and new media in a particular way. So the cliche would be the 80s pop stars behaving like politicians. Bob Geldof, Billy Bragg, loads of charity singles. But actually what I think happens is you see politicians starting to behave like pop stars and thinking about their brand beyond the value of the product they're selling, thinking about where are their consumers, where can they get their message across, how do they promote themselves, how do they take their products to the most available parts of the market. I think pop musicians have always been politicians because they're writing and responding to the world around them as we all are. Mm. But I think politicians becoming pop stars is a different thing. 
Okay, so I guess one of the burning questions I have is what happens when pop culture and politics doesn't work. So you look at Tracy Ullman and um, her career decline after Kinnock comes on to her music video, My Guy's Mad at Me, but also you detail it elsewhere. So you've got this phenomenal quote by Robert Smith of The Cure, and he's talking about Morrissey and he's talking about how politics, you know, it's not part of his music repertoire per se. And in the quote, he says, it goes back to things like Morrissey not eating meat. If people despise us as much as I despise Morrissey, and I say Greenpeace is wonderful, they're likely to firebomb the Rainbow Warrior. So that's a really good example of someone like Robert Smith that we might think matters because his his lyrics and his music say something about the signs of the times. But actually, that's Robert Smith acting as a really canny cultural analyst, actually saying a bit more than some of the academics were at the time about about how pop and pop audiences might relate to politics or activism. And saying that if you tie it all up in an individual and that you attach all of the values of a particular campaign or party to an individual, you're gambling that people like that individual more than they like that, those politics. And so there's quite a lot of negotiating kind of, well, is the pop star going to bring the charity or the campaign into disrepute or is the campaign going to damage the pop star's career? So with Glastonbury and CND, mm. for example, there's a constant kind of back and forth about whether or not the money that Glastonbury brings in and the kind of authenticity that Glastonbury brings in for CND is worth the tabloid stories about drugs and the disgusting portaloos. There's a kind of who it's a gamble between who's going to do well out of this. Can we balance out the threat of tainting each other with our reputations? I'm not sure whether you've seen all of the jokes on Twitter about how radical something like Teen Vogue is in explaining things like feminist theory. It's all over the internet. And there's a lot of backlash against it, a lot of reactionary responses, which are, we didn't have this in my day. Is that is that always true? No, it's bollocks. Absolute bollocks. <laughs> but we only do this when we're talking about girls, yeah, right? Yeah. We only do this when we're talking about girls. We don't do it when we talk about boys with guitars or people dealing with racism or homophobia in football pitches. We only do it when we're talking about girls, as if they've never had these conversations before. So, I mean, one of the really important things about the widening up of the girls' press, new glossy magazines in the 1980s, was that they took their role as kind of journalists seriously. So they were funny, they were irreverent, but they also covered really important ideas. They also they covered sex and sexuality and relationships at a time when those things were acutely being politicised and ideas around the age of consent being changed in the law, ideas about young people, young women's ability to access contraceptive being challenged in courts. Those discussions took place in girls' magazines. For me, it's not surprising that Teen Vogue is latterly attaching onto this, right? Girls have always been able to find spaces to have the conversations they need to have, and we don't actually need Teen Vogue to do it for us either. I mean, there were girls making their own fanzines, Shocking Pink, there's a brilliant piece of research by Anne Goff Yates on Shocking Pink, which is a, a kind of, we'd see it as a fanzine DIY publication, but it grows out of the personal ads on the back of Smash Hits or one of those magazines. So girls are always negotiating those places. It really reminded me of um, Angela McRobbie's work on the girls, because there's also a question here about consumption, isn't there? There's also a question about who is engaging with these products and how. And I think often, you know, cultural theorists do this quite a lot as well. We kind of go, 
there's a product and it's aimed at this audience, this audience will unquestioningly take on the messages within that product. So we we identify that X advert or X newspaper article is saying something and we assume that people read these like, you know, like sheep and that, you know, it's, it's got, there's lots of um, like wake up sheeple energy sometimes to how cultural theorists discuss anything of like in the cultural sphere. And I think it's really interesting because you just don't, you don't do that. You really interrogate the politics around the things happening, the things that aren't said. And also, so you give agency to the people enga- engaging with those things by looking at other things as well. You know, you don't just say, right, I'm going to look at this one article in Cosmopolitan magazine or wherever it is and say, right, OK, that means that women are being co-opted into these messages. You also look at all of the other space as well. It's really brilliant. I mean, there is that tendency, isn't it? Just as history isn't a thing, history isn't also waiting for me to come along and tell you what really happened or what something really means. Right? I'm there to en- engage in that conversation. And I think it is really important. It's not difficult. I mean, girls' glossy magazines are brilliant for this because they're so irreverent and they are so tongue-in-cheek. So the letters pages are full of readers writing in and telling them they've got it completely wrong and that is not what anyone thinks and their lives are completely wrong. Or music journalists slagging off Adamant, for example, and young girl fans, 1314, writing in about how he's a really helpful role model for them because he was consistently coming up as a really high role model in all of those obsessive surveys about what do young people want to do when they grow up, which we, we still primarily look look to to try and prove that our future's ruined by young people, that they would <laughs> they'd respond to those discussions going, actually, he's great. He taught me loads about this. And I learned about this by looking at him. And me and my friends have an incredible bond because we are connected by him. So yeah, you just need to look. You don't need to tell, you just need to look. So Lucy, there's a spectre, I think, haunting any discussion of the 1980s, which is the word nostalgia. And it certainly plays a role here, especially when we're looking at popular culture, because I think we've all seen those talking head programs. Now that's what I love about the 1980s. And it's often kind of sold back to us. The image of the 1980s is sold back to us on television, for example, because I also want to say that your book isn't about nostalgia. Your book is about the things that happened there. But it inherently has to engage with the concept of nostalgia because of how we now understand the 1980s. So do you think nostalgia's got a bad rap? I mean, nostalgia is a really 80s thing. Like Those ideas, <laughs> McRobbie, thinking about vintage markets, nostalgia, retro, the, the memory boom, the growth of oral history, those are really 80s ideas. So I was interested in thinking about how they might time travel, like what were they responding to then and what how are we using them now? I think the role of media narrative is really important. So the 80s, because of the way in which media formats changed and the market around audiences and changes around distribution and broadcast, the 80s was self-consciously producing itself through a very set piece of, very set narratives, very set bits, very set bits of imagery. So the Yomper photo in the Falklands. There's not a lot of photos of the Falklands. It was pretty hard to carry around big cameras. The Yomper photo becomes the image that we remember the Falklands through. A little bit of footage of status quo at Live Aid. That becomes the version of the 80s that we see. Who owns those clips? Who's making money out of them? And who's got the right to use them? So we need to think about that a little bit. And I think we also need to think there's a kind of nostalgia for the pre-digital, I think. So this is the last pre-digital generational moment and it was one of the first to be archived and talked about and nostalgiarized online in social media so there's something there as well I mean I try 
to be very clear about when I'm talking about me and my life and when I'm not, so that I'm not trying to generalise from my own memories. Uh, but of course, that they are behind all of the choices that I made. Um, I think haunting is more useful than nostalgia than nostalgia. I think haunting is more useful from nostalgia because it reminds you to do something, right? So not just, oh, things used to be better or worse in the past than they are in the present and using the past to measure the present. But hauntology reminds you, those ghosts are there to tell you to get off your ass and do something about it. <laughs> so for me, it's like hauntology is a much, is a more kind of active way of thinking about it. Because I know that Svetlana Boym wrote about nostalgia, you know, the idea that nostos, home, algia, longing, this idea of longing for a particular time and place, the time of our childhood, the time of our dreams, that's that kind of looking back. You know, it's motivated by love in a way of like, and, and also sometimes a rage at how present society looks. But I think you're right, there is something much nicer about thinking, thinking about how to be active <laughs> on that. I mean, nostalgia assumes you had something positive to look back on, right? Nostalgia is mm. a privilege. Having a home and a comfortable childhood where you felt loved and supported is a privilege. And it's a, it's a really useful myth for lots of communities who've been denied that in the present. But, you know, nostalgia can feel a bit privileged, whereas I think haunting feels a bit more like being an asset to the collective. So it's your mission. You say this in a, a number of ways and a number of times throughout the book. It's your mission to take pop culture seriously. And on that, I was wondering if in taking it seriously, we risk reducing the joy of pop culture. Isn't pop culture not politics? I mean, I know that there's small p and big p politics, but isn't culture supposed to be our escape? I take joy really seriously. <laughs> I take escape really seriously. So, I mean, I genuinely think about this consciously, and I thought about it a lot when I was writing the book, that I am trying to really perforate that, that idea that there are some things that are serious and important and some things that aren't, or that pleasure should be can be protected from analysis. And think about the analysis of pleasure or pleasure as an analysis. That you know, for me, I'm going to have my cake and I'm going to eat all of it, right? That I think that there probably should be a bit more joy and retreat in politics. But I think the joy is part of what I take really seriously in popular culture. I love that. What an amazing way to end. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. It's been such an absolute joy. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling that you get knowing that you've supported independent media. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomaszewicz. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Dr. Kasia Tomaszewicz. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 